0: In the name of the Father, the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Before he was arrested, before he uh, went to the cross and was crucified, Jesus, of course, went to the Garden of Gethsemane. You know that gardens uh, are very frequently found in the Scripture. Think of the Garden of Creation or the Garden of the Resurrection. Uh, But in this case, Jesus went to the garden uh, not to commune with nature, but to be with God. And he prayed, um, let this cup pass from me. In other words, oh God, I don't want to die. Um, And this was not just some theatrical gesture designed to uh, make his next words sound more impressive. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what Thy will be done. He really meant this. Um, now, some have said that this episode in Gethsemane, uh, with Jesus weeping and uh, and and praying for his life, is one of the most comforting. Uh, episodes in all of the Gospels. And it is, of course, the story that we are moving towards over the next couple of weeks as we approach Holy Week. Some people, you know, um, try to get closer to God by going on retreats. Um, They take time off of work. They get away from the daily routine in order to get with God, I knew a guy, actually uh, my older daughter's uh, uh, grandfather, uh, who used to go on retreat, a silent retreat, every year at a a monastery outside of St. Louis. I know others uh, who feel like they have to get up to some place up north, just to get away. I'm thinking of one man who said, if I don't get up there, my life gets crowded out and I just lose touch with God, and I suspect some of you can identify with that. We call these times of voluntary disengagement by a lot of different names. So we call them retreats. Sometimes we refer to them as Sabbath, and I know that some of you practice daily uh, meditations There are these times when we voluntarily step back from the rat race and just try to hear things from a different perspective. Um, In fact, you might even think of Sunday morning as a time like that, a time to, um, to step back and to practice the presence of God in your life. But there are also times of what we might call involuntary disengagement there are times in life when the routine when the daily round of activities gets interrupted there's a forced conclusion to it we didn't plan to be interrupted we didn't ask for it but it happens and it is then sometimes that we learn very important truths the hard way I bet you would be surprised if I told you how often as a pastor I have heard people who are going through very dark times in their lives, people who are um, coming out of periods uh, where something that they didn't want, something they, they didn't wish for was going on, and yet they have said something like, you know, this turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me. I don't think I'll ever be the same again. After my heart attack, I woke up to the reality of God in my life. In fact, the very first person that I met in seminary, Bob Watson, had been the president of a Chase Manhattan Bank in Manhattan. Had a beautiful home on Long Island, uh, a wife and three grown children. He had it all and had a heart attack and it was while he was recovering there in the hospital that he decided to trade it all in and go and study to be an Episcopal priest. A heart attack? A good teacher? Really? So the writer Eugene Peterson talks about these times of involuntary retreat. This is what he writes. Suddenly instead of mindlessly, compulsively pursuing an abstraction like money or happiness or the elusive good life, the person is reduced to what is actually there, to the immediately particular, the very personal, to family, to the immediate surroundings, to body, and begins afresh in love and in renewed appreciation. And the change, he goes on to say, the change is a direct consequence of the forced realization of human limits. The person is surprised to be living not a diminished but a deeper life. Not a crippled life, but rather a more zestful life. God intensity begins to replace self importance. A heart attack? More than just a physiological event? Really? Can this happen? Sometimes in those confined places in life when we feel Trapped, when we feel like there is no escape, we can actually be pushed closer to God and to what really matters. For instance, I mean, just think about how many really important things in the Bible were written while people were in prison. Like most of the letters of Paul, for example, or the letters of John written while he was under house arrest on the island of Patmos. Or Martin Luther King's um, Letters from the Birmingham Jail. Or the novels of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, all written while he was in a Soviet gulag. In fact, when he was released from that prison, Solzhenitsyn never wrote anything that was significant at all. And Eugene Peterson says, we also have those times of forced imprisonment So we go through a time of loss, maybe we lose a job, or we go through a divorce, or or a period of bereavement, we lose a loved one, or even a pet, and it's almost as if we have been sent into this time of forced exile. Not that these circumstances can produce new life and good all by themselves, no, But it is amazing how often they become almost like a necessary precondition for seeing life in a new way. I remember going to visit this retirement home. Actually, I went to visit a retired clergy person. um, And he was now confined to his bed in the nursing section of that home. And I remember going in. Here he is lying in bed. And he says to me, I find it ironic that now that I'm confined to this nursing section, I'm just trapped like a wounded duck. And that means that all these people, these colleagues that I have spent my entire career avoiding, I have no defense against. They come and visit me. A man that I couldn't stand being with at presbytery meetings has just spent an hour trying to comfort me. And I think God has done this to me. There are these times, it seems, where there is just no way to learn except the hard way. In fact, maybe, maybe, Nothing important about a crucified God can be learned, I mean, really learned, except the hard way. A few weeks ago, I read this sermon by this Lutheran pastor in New York, this really tough sermon. So she begins by saying to her congregation Hey, people, Lent is not for sissies. This is not going to be pretty. And I wonder if maybe that's what she was, this is what she was talking about. The writer and preacher, Robert L- Farah Capon, years ago, committed a grave moral lapse, causing pain not only to himself, but his loved ones. He committed adultery. When, over a meal in a restaurant, he confessed his adultery to his wife, his life promptly fell apart. And then he says he got saved. Let me bear a little personal witness, he says. Almost from the start of my life as a priest, he too was an Episcopal priest, I was a pretty good preacher, as preachers go. I was also a born teacher, and I love to explain things to people, though I seldom knew when to shut up and let them figure things out for themselves, but nobody's perfect. But I never quite got around, he says, to being a passionate enthusiast for what God had done for me personally in Jesus. Why? Why? Well, I now think it was because I believed back then I wasn't broken enough to need fixing. Hmm. But some 20 years ago, in a long love affair, 24 years, that was my marriage, I committed the unpardonable romantic sin of infidelity to the Beloved and I followed that up with the monumentally stupid mistake of confessing it to the Beloved herself. All in the unshakable assurance that I could repent so persuasively and in such a wonderfully manipulative way that she would have to forgive me. At the time, that was my idea of repentance a negotiation in which I was certain that my deep sincerity would always give me the upper hand. But it didn't. And in the course of a lunch at an Italian restaurant in Manhattan, the love that had been my life went west for good. 24 years of wine and roses, poetry and passion went whistling down the wind. My first reaction, he says, was denial. This just couldn't happen. My second reaction, though, was anger. She had to forgive me, damn it! I won't even bother with the rest of my reactions because they're all beside the point. But one way or another, they were every one of them. Attempts to get back, what I thought of was my control over this bad situation, to get my life back where I felt like it belonged, namely, with me in the driver's seat. But then it slowly dawned on me. My control was never coming back. I was going to have to face something that I had spent my whole life avoiding. I was powerless. None of the devices that I tried to use on my wife did any good. My control hadn't merely slipped. It was gone. But in the end, and with me fighting the realization every inch of the way, the truth dawned on me. It wasn't that I was powerless or temporarily out of control or momentarily unhappy or hurt, I was dead. I had no more influence than a corpse over my own life. And then Capon goes on to say that that death was a necessary prelude to being born again. In my humble experience, real knowledge of this god is rarely learned on any path other than through Gethsemane. Capon had to die to himself in order to be born again. Any of you ever been present at a birth? I mean, not that you gave birth, but actually watching somebody give birth, it is not pretty. I mean, all of that new life that grows from that pain. Suffering, maybe, is the ultimate experience, the intrusive reminder, we are not as much in charge of our lives as we like to think. I think we go to such extraordinary Extremes to avoid pain in life, not just because of the physical pain, but because of the anguish it causes us. And yet it is that anguish, that tearful recognition, that invites us to realize that we are not God. And that you and I actually need this crucified one to become who we really are. And it is a lesson we will do just about anything to avoid. Maybe we just have to be forced into it. Another colleague uh, who had to acknowledge his dependence on alcohol. And he had started to go to AA and um, was beginning the treatment for alcoholism. And I remember him saying to me, you know, I've learned things about the scripture that I, I never had seen before. Like what, I said. He said, well, you know that throwaway comment about, that Jesus has about, you know, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you become like a child. I said, well, what does that have to do with anything? He said, well, the truth is, you cannot decide to become like a child. But if you live long enough, life will do that to you. At a conference, this, uh, this psychotherapist was talking to us clergy types. And I remember him saying, you know, you pastors, you need to restore balance in your life. Balance between taking care of the needs of other people and taking care of your own needs. You need personal time, time for yourself. And, of course, that made some sense to me. But then I also remember somebody saying something like this. Balance is the temporary illusion that is created when you are dumb enough to think you are actually in control of your life. You know, I really don't believe that old saying, you know, they say, uh, God never gives you more than you can bear. Um, I don't believe that. I have seen far too many people crushed under the burdens that life has put on their backs. But it is, I mean, don't you think it's, Fascinating how many times those seemingly unbearable burdens in the hands of a crucified God can become like blessings. Like Jesus, we go to Gethsemane and the tears flow, but maybe we come away having seen God a little more clearly. I think that in our world, we have gotten to the point where we think that no pain, no suffering has any meaning. It should all be just done away with and forgotten. Redemptive suffering, for my money at least, is one of the most offensive and the most wonderful of Christian beliefs. This scandalous idea that life's pains that life's suffering and the crosses that are placed on our back can actually become gifts of a God who would actually go to a cross in order to get closer to us. This guy lost his high-paying job in management. Literally one day he was packed up his box, all of his stuff on his desk in one little box, and he was forced to go home, forced in the process to find some significance in his life other than the corporation and he found in this process that he was an artist so he could literally stand there and he could say to me my getting fired was one of the best things that ever happened in my life and he meant it I do believe all things work together for those who love the Lord. And that is just not some Pollyanna smile that is pasted on life's tragedies. It is rather the hopeful confidence that arises from a Christian conviction that no matter where life takes you, no matter what your Gethsemane, that God is there. The God who did not shrink back from the shame and the pain of the cross is going to be there with you in your cross bearing. So as I said last week, there is really no hope and there is nothing that you could call good about Good Friday unless the cross and the tomb were finally empty. But equally true, There is no Easter without Good Friday. See the nail prints, he said to them. I was there, and so I will be there with you in your Gethsemane, in your suffering. Amen.